Hey listeners, I'm Nika Allen and welcome to the Black Magic Podcast. In each episode, I share the inspiring stories of British black women. Hear us laugh, talk about our adventures, our goals and life experiences. Hopefully something in their journey will resonate with you. My hope is that this podcast will leave you feeling uplifted and encouraged to share a little of your own magic. So let's get started. This podcast is produced by Unedited. In today's episode, giving me the lowdown is Yvonne Bajala. I'm joined by Yvonne Bajala, who is a founding member at Impact X, a black-led VC which invests in companies led by underrepresented founders. So um, for people that don't know what a VC is, what is a VC? Yeah, sure. So venture capitalists essentially invest in startups. Um, So typically companies that have really high growth potential. Um, And in exchange for that, we take an equity stake in the business. Okay. So I think that, um, you know, at this time where um, a lot of people have been furloughed or, you know, currently unemployed, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, some people are at home kind of just chilling, but there's a lot of people also wanting to start that business that they've had in their mind and or kind of put more into their side hustle at the moment. So I definitely think people are going to get a lot out of today's um, podcast. So firstly, just how did you learn about a career in this industry? Like how do you become a venture, work in venture capital? Yeah, sure. So I was very fortunate to start my career working at an investment bank. So I worked at Goldman Sachs and um, I knew a few people that had jobs in the industry at the time, you know, they were getting really well paid and I was good at maths. So I always knew that I had the analytical skills required. Um, you know, so working in investment bank, oftentimes you hear about transactions um, taking place with various companies. And I came to realize that most of the most successful companies today, such as your Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, all had one thing in common in that they've raised capital from venture capitalists. And so that's how I came to learn about the world of startups and how companies grow and scale into billion dollar businesses. And that's what sparked my initial interest in the industry. Um, and I remember, you know, a year after joining the industry, I went to spend a summer in Ghana and I was doing a bit of advisory work for some startups over there. And at the time there was a lot of talk about startups on the continent, raising money from venture capitalists, such as Jumia, for example. Mm. And that's what really caught my my interest in entrepreneurship. And I caught the entrepreneurship bug. Um, and at that point, I knew that I wanted to pursue a career in venture capitalists. Uh, but prior to that encounter, I didn't have any insights into the industry, didn't really know much about it because it is notoriously known for being quite obscure. Yeah, no, it is. And, you know, even um, now you kind of hear about the industry having a bit of a diversity problem. And why do you think that is? What contributes yeah. to that? So if you look at the industry, you know, it's known for being somewhat of an old boys club. And that's because the industry has historically been extremely small and exclusive. Many firms have less than 10 people. Um, and that tends to be comprised of all male partners. They usually retire late. Many of them have been in their partner roles for many, many years. Um, and because of that, hiring turnover for partners is very low. So there's a small window of opportunity for new individuals to come in and become partners. Um, And that's typically why we don't see diversity. And I also think that there is an ingrained bias within the industry where, you know, that may not be intentional, but it's evident that there is a lot of this men like me bias. Um, So that this is a subconscious bias where it impacts hiring and making investments. Um, So, you know, we have started to see a shift in, in more females, for example, joining the industry. Um, which I think is great, but we definitely have a long way to go. How did Impact X come about? 
Um, so Impact Tech started out, a um, group of individuals came together back in 2018 um, and the conversation was really around how can we help underrepresented founders um, and the conclusion was reached that, you know, money needs to be put behind it and the way in which um, impact could be created at scale was to have a fund back in entrepreneurs. Um, so that's how it came together from initial conversation. The fund was officially formed in uh, late 2018 and we started invested investing in uh, 2019 and since then we've done over 12 investments. So where do you get that fund from to then invest in companies? Um, so typically venture capital uh, investors pull together um, funding from various sources so it may be institutional investors such as pension funds, um, you know high net worth individuals so there's a range of uh, sourcing where, of where the funds come from to fund venture capital funds. Ah, oh, amazing. That's good to know because you often hear about kind of these companies investing. You think, is it just is it just high network individuals or is it other places? That's good to know. So as yeah, you know, so it is really a a variety. Um, so some funds, for example, have one individual that's that's funded the entire fund. Um, so it really does vary fund to fund. Um, but typically, it'll be from a mixture of high network individuals, uh, institutional investors such as pension funds investing on behalf of um, pension investors, um, as well as traditional larger um, corporates as well may invest in venture capital funds as well. Fantastic. Um, so I'm, you know, woman, I'm black. And, you know, you hear that a lot. There's a, like a big disparity when it comes to funding a business that's founded by ethnic minorities or women. And so, and I'm both. <laughs> so why mm. is that? Like why, if, you know, if I have this amazing business idea and want to go out and get money, why am I finding it more difficult than other people? Yeah, so it comes back to, you know, the individuals within the investment decision making process, you know, investors typically invest in what they know, what they understand and where they believe they can add the most value. When investors can't relate to your product or you as an individual, for whatever reason, it gets tougher to successfully pitch to them. Um, you know, humans tend to spend more time with people of similar backgrounds, gender, education. So this inherent bias fuels the problem within the industry. You know, I remember there was a time where I was at a startup pitching event and there was a female founder that pitched a product that was focused on females. Mm. And after the pitch, few of the investors said, you know, I really don't understand the need for this product. But as the, one of the few females in the room, I understood the need for the product. Mm. And that really just demonstrates, you know, without having more diversity of thought, whether it's race, gender, um, or age, in the investment decision-making uh, positions, this disparity in funding will continue. Um, and, you know, there's clear evidence that shows that women are, for example, two times more likely to back female founders. Mm. Um, so ultimately, we need to see more diversity at the investment level before that will change. Exactly. And, you know, at, and at home, you know, often, you know, it's women that are leading the way when kind of managing the purse strings and, you know, running the family home and, getting out and you know a lot of women have businesses you know so getting more funding for them so that they're able to kind of feed their family help their community by you know employing people you know that would be an amazing thing I mean definitely you know what stage does a business need to be at to secure investment or what do they what do people need in place yeah so I'm, I'm going to tackle this from the venture capital perspective and then I could speak more broadly to it okay. I think when you're looking at from a venture capital perspective is typically at the point where, you know, companies have built a product or service. They've reached a stage where they have that early customer traction. So there's clear validation as to, you know, customers 
wanting your product. Um, you know, and as a founder, I think there's a few prerequisites that you need to be aware of um, if you are trying to raise venture capital funding. And that's first of all, can your company grow or scale very fast? Um, and you know, when I say that, it's can your company grow by say two or three times a year? Because venture capitalists, the way in which the model works, oftentimes, in um, all of the time, in actual fact, uh, venture capitalists want to seek a big exit. And by that, I mean an acquisition or initial public uh, market offering. Okay. And the only way that can be achieved is if a company scales. So addressing a large enough problem uh, that has the ability to scale is one of the key things that you know venture capitalists tend to look for. But ultimately, as a founder, you have to consider whether you're also prepared to give away equity because that does come with additional things such as you know, you'll know you have to create a board, you'll have to report into investors on, say, a monthly or quarterly basis. Um, but generally speaking, I would say that if you've developed product or service and you've got early customer traction, and you believe you have the ability to to scale, that's the point when you want to raise venture capital funding. Um, but let's not forget that, you know, there are alternative forms of funding. So there's debt, there's crowdfunding, for example. You know, there was a re recent example of an incredible female founder in the US, um, Dawn Dixon, and she raised over $1 million in, through a crowdfunding campaign for her smart vending machine business. Um, so yes, there are alternative means, but you know, each funding method has its pros and cons. And, entrepreneurs just really need to determine what makes sense for them. Um, and, you know, I always say to entrepreneurs, the best time to raise funding is when you actually have a product or service and you've proven that there is a market for it. Okay. That's good to know. So have your product ready first and then kind of start approaching people. Um, but you mentioned crowdfunding there. So for people listening that aren't sure what crowdfunding is, can you explain what that is? Yeah, sure. So it's a platform whereby, um, you know, you present your product or service and individuals can go and invest in the stake of your business. And that could be anywhere from um, £100, for example. So it really just democratizes the investment process, enables um, individuals to invest in companies. I think it works particularly well for consumer companies where you've got a product or a service that really resonates with individuals. It could be used as a great marketing tool. Yes, and one such, one such example of a company that, you know, did this really well was Monzo. So when they first started out, they used crowdfunding to raise awareness about their product. And look where Monzo are now. They're doing, they're doing fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the company is, is going through a difficult time with uh, the COVID-19 situation. But, you know, over the years, it's, it's had incredible growth. What's your company's investment process? Yeah, so we actually encourage entrepreneurs to apply directly on our website. So, you know, a lot of venture capitalists um, require warm introductions, but that's something that we definitely don't. Um, we review every inbound application. Um, so someone in our team will have a look at the pitch deck and review the um, the details that have been sent over. And what happens is we typically set up an initial call if it meets with our criteria. Mm -hmm. um, and that call is just an opportunity for us to get a better understanding of the founders, the vision of the company. And if the, the business in question, again, fits with that criteria, we'll then schedule a second meeting and that's really just for us to deepen our understanding of the business and provide some feedback. What we intend is that every single interaction with us is mutually beneficial where we'll aim to provide feedback wherever possible. And after that second meeting, you know, if it's something that the team remains really excited about, what we we'll tend to do is a deep dive due diligence meeting. And that's really just where we go into every single aspect of the business from, you know, the competitive landscape, we'll look at the sales pipeline, you know, potential business development opportunities, 
We'll also look to assess the team. Sometimes, you know, we'll do reference calls if necessary. Um, and again, we try to make that highly beneficial. We'll provide really detailed feedback on every aspect of the business. But I guess the thing that I want to highlight is, you know, the investment process is just one portion of what we do. Because once we invest, you know, it is a long-term relationship that we'll have with the companies um, and we'll actively look to work with the portfolio companies to provide strategic support, make introductions and anywhere else where we think we could be of a value. Mm, that's amazing. I mean, um, going back to something that you said earlier that um, a lot of VCs kind of want warm, um, warm leads in terms of getting, getting in contact with businesses, um, which is hard for, you know, like if you don't know anybody or have a contact that can introduce you to I'm a company like that, then um, then it's difficult for you to even get your foot in the door. So it's great that you, your company lets people just go into the website cold and get in contact. And if they've got a great business, then you'll be in touch. And the first thing you look at is the pitch deck, you said. So what's, you know, what should be in a good pitch deck? Yeah, so I guess like just, you know, taking a step back, you know, every fund has its own philosophy and criteria. So whenever I'm looking at a pitch deck, the first thing that I'm looking for is ensuring that it's in line with our fund's um, overall vision, sectors that we focus on and the demographics that we look for. Mm. Um, Once that's been fulfilled, I'm personally looking for a few things. So, you know, does the company have a solid team? I want to spend time with the team in order to assess that not only do they have the right experience, but there's the right culture, the management philosophy, and how obsessed they are with tackling the problem. Because ultimately, we're investing for a long period of time, of say five to seven years. So we want to make sure that, you know, the individual is in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something else that I look for, again, is the market size. Is it a scalable market? Is there is it a big enough market where you have the ability to scale the company to millions of revenues. Again, that, that's very key. Um, and then it, it's just about whether the product or service is compelling enough. So do you have client traction that really demonstrates that? What do your customers think about your product or service? And what is really unique about it? And there are various ways that a product or service can be unique from you know, product differentiation. So are you offering something that's completely different than what's in the market today? Do you have process differentiation? So you know, have you found a more efficient way of doing things? Um, or it could even be price differentiation. So you found a cheaper way of doing things. And in some cases, they, you may even be offering um, premium pricing, which obviously works in some cases. Fantastic. Yeah. And so with the businesses that you've invested in so far, is the one that you've, is the one in particular that you've been really excited about? Yeah, so there's there's a company that we've invested in um, called Marshmallow. It's an tech company. Uh, incredible team. The company has, you know, really demonstrated um, incredible growth since we invested. And I'm really excited about the, the growth that's going to come out of that business. Um, you know, we invested because they're operating in a space that hasn't really been tackled before. It's a large enough niche. So they're offering insurance to immigrants and migrants. Mm. Um and, you know, really, really great teams. The team, um, when I look at them and, you know, see how they operate, even, you know, through this current um, period of, of crisis that we're in with COVID-19, their resilience and their ability to think strategically has, has continued to impress me. What people, um, you know, have inspired you in terms of the kind of wanting to work in this space or, you know, are there any books you've read that kind of help? Just, you know, I just want to know kind of what kind of things just inspire you generally. 
Yeah, so I, I personally draw inspiration from a number of people. I think I'd say that one of my biggest inspirations is Serena Williams. Um, you know, she's someone that she has achieved multiple success as a legendary tennis player, uh, a venture capitalist, a successful businesswoman, a mother. Um, I just love how multifaceted she is and how she does everything with excellence despite the adversity she faces. Um, in terms of books, I am a bit of a bookworm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, there, there are a number of books that have... Uh, really inspired me um, along my journey, one of them being Alchemist. And, and for me, that's just a great book for anyone that needs to continue to make fearless decisions daily to keep true to their larger vision. Um, highly recommend for entrepreneurs or anyone that's, you know, working on, on a project. Another great book is The Purposeful Life, uh, Purpose Driven Life, sorry, by Rick Warren. Um, you know, I'm someone that's really purpose driven. And, you know, for me, it was just a really spirit-filled book that changed my attitude toward life. Um, and it completely, you know, changed my perspective on God's purpose um, for humans and, and how we should really be uh, looking at life. No, definitely. And those two books are definitely in my top 10. I recently um, been doing kind of like posting the top 10 books um, on my Facebook and The Alchemist was, um, was definitely one of the ones I posted. But I forgot about Purpose Driven Life and I read it years and years ago. But you speaking about it now makes me want to get it back out and read it over again. Um, yeah, I'll have to check out your, your Facebook list. <laughs> I'm always looking for new books to read. Um, and I totally agree with you. I'm someone that, you know, reads books and then will read them again, like say two or three years later, and they continue to have the same impact um, on that second read. No, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, if you're kind of an entrepreneur, you know, business owner as well, you know, it's always good to kind of hear from other people, different perspectives, and just to keep keep your mind ticking over with information. So, you know, reading looking at the different blogs and things and subscribing to i guess any um any places that you know have content that will help you so definitely think that's a great thing um so in business you kind of often you know you, you know you have some people that will be successful and but they'll have their challenges and we all go through failure in life so what have you learned from failure and can you, can you tell us about if you've had a big failure in your life yeah, I've had many failures. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess like thinking back to, you know, there was a period of, of um, my career where I was working at a Japanese investment company called Mitsui. Um, so I was working as a senior investment manager and I was very fortunate to live a- across the world. So spent some time living in Kenya, um, you know, and during my time that I was tasked to work on a joint venture with a large global technology company. And I was really just providing extra hands with their new market expansion strategy, which meant that I was working with the team three days a week um, and looking at new markets that we could consider entering into in Africa. Um, and one of the markets that I really liked was Tanzania. So the first time I went to Tanzania, I fell in love with the country, thought it was really beautiful, um, spent some time speaking to many corporates across the com- country, um, met with the regulators, because this joint venture was really focused on mobile infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and so obviously those conversations with the regulators were very key if we were to enter into the new market. And I came to the conclusion that, you know, it was an incredible market, we should enter. And my real basis for that decision was on desktop research that I'd done speaking to the corporates and speaking to people in my network. Yeah. Um, everything pointed to the market being um, a great uh, market to enter. And I managed to convince the team. I remember, you know, we spent thousands on, on, on uh, trying to prep the market for that entry and doing the groundwork. And it ended up not working out. And 
you know, that was a failure in the sense where we had spent so much time looking at the market. I was convinced there was a great market based on the conversations I had. What I realized is we hadn't actually spoken to the people that matters and that's the people that would be purchasing the product. Um, you know, and what we found is that, you know, the price point that we were entering with was too high and the market wasn't simply large enough. Um, so I think what I really learned from that is, you know, always try to validate markets by speaking to customers, speaking to the users and try and do it as cheap and quickly as possible. So we had spent a lot of time in Tanzania speaking to the wrong individuals and we could have probably come to that decision a lot quicker had we spoken to the actual people that we were targeting. Yeah, And that's something that I've carried forth throughout my career. So when I'm speaking to entrepreneurs, I always say, you know, how have you validated that customers actually want your product or service? And and is there a way that if you haven't done that, you could do it quickly and cheaply? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, fast forward months later after that, we did enter the Liberian market and we were able to validate very quickly based on the lessons that we had learned, speaking to the actual potential customers as to whether it's something that they would pay for, whether the price point made sense. Um, so, yeah, I guess that that was an example of, of failure. So, you know, we spent a lot of money and time uh, looking at that particular market, which didn't work out. Um, but, you know, continue to press forward, didn't let it define me, yeah. took full responsibility for that and used those lessons um, when we later entered into the Liberian market. Mm. And some good tips there for um, entrepreneurs as well in terms of doing their research. And, you know, whether it's, you know, doing a focus group, as you said, speaking directly to customers and just kind of testing things before you kind of spend lots of money and time, money and time to find actually that the product or service isn't required. I think that's definitely um, good food for thought and, and it's great that you learned from that experience and then we're able to go into another market and smash it basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't stress how important it is to actually speak to the potential customers within your market. Mm. I mean, so that's your failure, but I'm sure you've had countless proud moments throughout your career. So what has been your proudest moment so far? Yes, I would say that it's, you know, being able to work for a fund, you know, that has a great mission and alongside some really credible individuals, I wake up every day excited about the work I do, um, you know, and I'm able to work in line with my mission and my purpose to back unrepresented founders and and help people's dreams come to life. Um, And not only are we trying to change the narrative around the significant disparity in funding, um, but we're creating opportunities and and empowering individuals along the way. And so that's something that I'm really, really proud about. No, definitely. I mean, have you ever wanted to start your own business? I have actually. <laughs> um, but the great thing about what we do is, you know, I get to work with incredible companies every day um, and help people along the way. Um, I always say that being a venture capitalist is almost like being an extended employee. Mm-hmm. You end up helping companies in any capacity and that could mean helping with recruitment, helping with business development, helping with strategy. Um, so I really do love that aspect of the role. Oh, I mean, what did you study in order to be able to do what you do today? I studied economics, but I mean, it's definitely not a prerequisite. I would say that there's no traditional route to enter the industry. Um, I know individuals that have come from, say, a marketing background or individuals that have worked for a startup. I even know individuals that, you know, were previously doctors. Um, and so there's no real one, no, no sig- uh, one way path to enter the industry. Mm. So if there's no one-way path, is there something that, you know, what are the three things people should know before starting out in the industry then? Like, what should they keep in mind if they want a career as, um, as a VC? 
Yeah, so I think it's three key things. Intellectual curiosity. Early stage investing is all about finding the needle in the haystack. So, you know, technologies, markets and trends are constantly changing. So having that ability and, and passion about learning about new industries, companies and technologies is an absolute must if you want to be at the top of the game. So yeah. I spend a lot of my time researching and you have to enjoy that aspect of the role, whether it's books, podcasts, articles, it's, it's only going to help you improve your depth of knowledge and prove your value in the industry. I remember before I joined the industry, I spent a lot of my time reading a lot, you know, reading every single post by Paul Graham, who's um, one of the lead investors in the industry and I would spend my days just really immersing myself. And that's, that's definitely one of the key things. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is just having the ability to put yourself out there. You know, the industry is notoriously network driven. Um, now I'm naturally someone that's an introvert, but at the same time, I love building relationships with people. Mm-hmm. And so you really do have to be comfortable with that. It's a major part of the role, whether it's, you know, attending industry events, connecting with investors or other founders, building relationships is absolutely key. Um, and then there's the obvious analytical skills and the ability to absorb information really quickly. I mean, you're never going to know as much about an industry or um, a particular area than the founders that we back, but you do need to have a very good understanding of the key levers. So what drives markets, demand and supply within an industry, as well as, you know, the market trends. Fantastic. I think they're definitely wonderful tips for people that want to do this as a career. I mean, what do your family think about what you do? Um, so my younger cousins, for example, they, they think it's really interesting. Uh, my mom doesn't really get it. <laughs> she, I remember, I remember there was a time where she was like, oh yeah, my daughter's an accountant. I was like, I'm not an accountant. <laughs> She's like, I can understand that. <laughs> yeah. But it's really helpful. Like my husband works in, in the tech industry as well. And so, um, always bouncing ideas off of him. Um, yeah, and it's just, uh, I guess, a topic of conversation that often comes up yeah. um, around companies, you know, what, what people should be looking out for and so on. Yeah. Are you, um, so what are the kind of hours like in this kind of role? Because you're married and um, so how do you balance kind of doing your work and family life? I guess like it comes in waves. So there's, there's periods where, you know, you are going to be extremely busy just depending on the companies that you're working with, for example, um, or the investments that you're working on, um, which will require you to do long hours. So, you know, sometimes having to work until midnight, for example. Mm. Um, but then there is periods of downtime. And for me, that, that period of downtime is really important. I'm incredibly um, someone that believes in having a balanced life. Um, and so, you know, where there are those downtimes, I definitely try to seek out doing the other things that I love to do. Mm. what are they what kind of things do you like to do in your spare time what what helps give you that balance yeah so it's a few things really you know I love watching Netflix um (laughs) so I'm a big fan of documentaries I recently just watched The Last Dance and you know the Michelle Obama documentary on Netflix and highly recommend both Mm. um I love burying myself into books so you know currently reading a few books at the moment um that's something that I always love to do. And I also love cooking. I find it very therapeutic. Um, so I'm always experimenting with new dishes in the kitchen. Mm, fantastic. I mean, what were, so you mentioned that you, um, the two Netflix documentaries. So either one of them, either Becoming or um, the, last, the Last Dance, what, tell me something that kind of was a key takeaway for you from one of those documentaries in terms of, um, I guess, career or drive. Because for me, um, watching The Last Dance and, um, 
just hearing Michael, how Michael Jordan kind of how focused he was and how, you know, driven he was and just, you know, he knew what he wanted. He knew what he wanted to achieve. He was confident in his abilities and, you know, you had to admire that and what he achieved. And so um, that was kind of a big takeaway for me in terms of actually just, if you really want something, just, just go for it, regardless of what anybody else thinks. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like I found The Last Dance incredibly inspiring. Um, and it's really just about how, you know, if you really dedicate and apply yourself to to an industry or, you know, the work or, or position that you're in, um, how you, how that can really, really um, bear fruits. And, and we've definitely seen that in, in Michael Jordan's career. Mm. Um, so if anyone hasn't watched it, I highly recommend it. Going back to, um, you know, you're doing a lot in kind of your career and everything and stuff, but if you kind of went back to speak to your younger self, what one piece of advice would you give your younger self in terms of looking at where you are today to, to how you were thinking and feeling back then? So say if you were like 16, 16, 17, 18. Yeah. Interesting question. Um, you know, I, I would advise my younger self to really dig deep and think about the skills and abilities that are unique to myself and, and really be my own biggest cheerleader um, and I'm saying that because when I was growing up, I was often told, you know, I'm soft-spoken, um, particularly when I entered the world of banking. I remember, <clears throat> I remember being told by a mentor to try and use a more aggressive tone in the way I speak. And, and, and that was required if I wanted to become um, or be perceived as more assertive. Mm. Um, but over the years, I've come to learn that that's who I am. I am soft-spoken, but at the same time, I can also be assertive. I have the ability to also emphasize with others. And that's really important. That's one of my superpowers. As an investor, you have to have the ability to support entrepreneurs with your time, resources, knowledge, and sometimes provide emotional support. So being that compassionate, empathetic um, individual has really worked in my favor. Mm. And it took me years before I discovered that and got comfortable with that. But, you know, I've learned it now and I definitely see it as one of my strengths. You mentioned kind of working in finance and banking and things and people saying um, things to you about how you speak and things. And, you know, banking and finance, you know, in VC is typically very male dominated. So how is it being kind of a woman working in those industries? How do you kind of, I guess, combat the kind of, I guess the gender kind of discrimination often you hear about in those industries? Yeah. So initially it was something that I, I did really think about. However, I guess my, my mindset has definitely shifted um, in recent years. Because I think as females, we bring a lot of value to the table. We're able to provide a really unique and valuable perspective. You know, going back to that example that I mentioned earlier about when I was um, sitting in listening to a female pitching, I was able to bring that female perspective. And had I not been there, they wouldn't have realized that there's actually real value in the product from a female perspective. Um, so I own that, that. I own the fact that, yes, I am um, a female. I am a woman of color. Um, but early on in my career, it's something that I did find very difficult. Yeah. The, um, you hear a lot as well about, um, yes, women say like if they're going into a particular industry, say finance, for example, and, you know, if it's when it comes to pay, not asking for what they deserve, you know, they could be doing the exact same job as, you know, the guy sitting next to them and getting paid way less. And, and I wonder if that's, does that happen as well in terms of the finances that, we, that women and um, venture capital, not venture capital, sorry, women, female entrepreneurs ask for as well? Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, you know, when I was um, starting out my career in banking, I, I heard of a colleague of mine that was earning more than me and I didn't say anything. Um, and in hindsight, I should have said something. Um, it's only later on in my career where I got more comfortable to, you know, demand what I thought I was worth. And, and I really had that shift in my mindset. And I think it's really, really important that, you know, 
those conversations are normal. Um, you know, you can have those conversations with your employer and you're not going to be deemed as anything less because you've asked for a better salary. Mm. Um, you know, and what have you got to lose from it? And that, that's, that's something that took me a, a long time to understand. Um, from my perspective, um, you know, it can be challenging for female founders, uh, but you just have to have that confidence and, and go in and remember, you know, you're creating something of value, your product or service and just, just own it. Just go in there and pitch just like a man would go in there and say, you know, I want 3 million for, you know, whatever valuation do the same. Um, what do you, again, what do you have to lose? Exactly. What do you, you have nothing to lose? You know, they say no. And then you move on. But to say, yes, exactly. yeah, everything you, have, you ask for. I mean, growing up, did you talk about money in your household? I mean, where did your money mindset come from? It's really interesting. So my dad is someone that's had probably the major impact on my life. Um, unfortunately, he passed away last year. However, he's someone that inspired me to actually study economics. We would spend weekends reading the Financial Times when other children were out playing on Saturdays. Um, okay. And so he really instilled in me money management understanding of the um, financial ecosystem and how the, the world of financial markets work. And he did actually teach me um, values around money as well. I remember there was a period of time where he would give me £10 a day. £10 as a day as a child is a lot of money. And then one day he, was, he, he stopped and I said, why have you stopped giving me money? And he said, what have you been doing with all the money I've been giving you? And that was his lesson to me that I should have been saving the money instead of spending it. So where I was spending it on McDonald's and sweets, he actually changed my mindset in that period that I should actually be saving it. Um, and so that was probably one of my earliest money management lessons. And it's definitely something that was instilled in me by my father. I think that's a great lesson that your um, father gave you because, you know, a lot of, um, particularly in the black community, I find that a lot of people haven't had that um, kind of training when it comes to managing their finances and kind of knowing how to, you know, save or to invest or, and just the kind of things that they should be doing with their money. So your dad definitely did a great thing teaching you that. If people want to find out more about you or Impact X, tell us what's the best way to get in touch. Yeah, so it's uh, Yvonne Bajella on Instagram, Twitter, um, Y-V-O-N-N-E-B-A-J-E-L-A, and impactxcapital.com is where you can find out more information about the fund. Perfect, perfect. Continue to keep your spirits high, and thank you for joining us for... Um, today's black magic podcast thank you so much really appreciate it and so for, for those of you listening you can catch every episode of the black magic podcast by subscribing on acast apple and all good podcast apps spread the word and share the magic this podcast is produced by unedited